You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Onyx Maps. Now, one of the huge benefits of Onyx Maps is being able to save an area, a land area, as a map. Then, when you don't have any mobile data, you don't have any phone service, you can use your phone's GPS on a very high quality digitally enhanced map with the topo lines with the satellite imagery and it's like you're able to navigate on that map just by saving it to your phone and the gps little dot the blue dot on there leads the way you're still able to drop waypoints and uh, leave you know make a trail and all those things uh, we did that when i went to south dakota didn't have any phone service out in the hills and i was able to save a map and go off the saved map and it, it's something that is it truly saves uh, time it makes you more efficient and it allows you to really focus on what you're there to do and that's find and kill an animal so if you want to find out more information about Onyx, please visit onyxmaps.com. If you want to download the, the service, download the app, go ahead and use the discount code NATION20. That's going to save you 20% off for all new customers. Welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast with your hosts, Garrett Prawl and Boudreaux Boswell. All right. It is now officially 2020, which also means that the deer season is over. And I can't really complain at all. I had a really a fantastic year. So just to kind of recap what happened over the last couple of weeks, I haven't been hunting super hard. I've been more monitoring an area for daylight movement. You know, I... I have enough meat in the freezer that I can get through to next year. That's not a huge issue, but if I had more venison in the freezer, it would just be that much more surplus, so to speak, that we could just continue to make, you know, even more venison dishes than we already do. And so I've just been kind of monitoring. I have trail cameras out in Wisconsin and I've been getting a lot of daylight movement, nothing huge in terms of like antler size or anything like that, but Lots of does moving through certain areas in hill country in Wisconsin, which has a little bit longer season than uh, Minnesota does. Minnesota closed on the 31st of December, whereas Wisconsin, at least in the counties that I hunt, it's open until January uh, 6th. So January 6th was the last day. It's now January 7th as I'm recording this. You guys are going to be listening to this at least on January 9th. So it would have been the previous weekend that was the last weekend for that county in Wisconsin that I hunt. Now, some counties in Wisconsin are also open through the 31st of January, but I mean, to be totally honest, by this time of the year, I'm pretty well ready to start switching over to ice fishing. And a lot of guys have already been ice fishing for several, several weeks here in Minnesota. So that was kind of the, the plan and what I've been doing over the last several weeks, just kind of monitoring, looking for daylight movement, waiting to sort of pounce, so to speak. And I had a pretty good plan going in. The movement that I had been seeing, it wasn't very repeatable, I guess is the best way to describe it. If you have agriculture or something like that, a lot of times those deer, especially late season, can seem to start to get back into a very consistent, repeatable bed to food pattern. But the challenge with this area that I'm hunting in particular is that we didn't really have that strong agriculture late season presence to really define that bed to feed pattern. And what we instead got was a lot of browse. 
the deer are feeding on just kind of the natural forage still available in the area. And so as a result of that, there were several beds over kind of a small area, not very pinpoint. And also the food is totally scattered throughout. So when you go to scout this place, and I, I did this a couple times when I went to go check cameras, you would see tracks spread throughout and there would be certain pinch points where you'd see scatterings of tracks that were more converged, especially when we got close to really steep bluffs and things like that. But you would see tracks every which direction and you would see tracks that weren't necessarily in hard defined trails, but more so just kind of spread throughout areas in tracks facing every direction, clearly where deer would slow down and just kind of mill around through an area. And so as a result, it was, yeah, pretty tough to pinpoint exactly where to go. But what I decided to do that first day, January 5th, the last weekend of the season, is I hopped in there knowing that I'd have at least a good chance of seeing potentially something. With all the leaves down, visibility is fantastic. And up in this hill country area, I basically worked my way into a ridge next to a steep bluff and also over kind of a, I guess you could say like a hollowed out kind of bowl where I could see a long direction through the timber. And I went and sat up there. There was a lot of fresh tracks on the ground. It's an area that was close enough to a camera that I knew that just maybe on average, every one out of three, every one out of two days, there'd be deer that would move through there during daylight. And that particular night, I didn't have anything that came through, although I did jump two deer that was, it was really just kind of unavoidable on the way in. And I jumped those couple of deer probably within a hundred yards of where I ended up setting my uh, saddle platform. But I decided to sit there anyway, because I thought number one, they didn't spook very hard. So there's a chance that they came kind of milling back through that area. Number two, I knew there was more deer using that certain area. So there was a chance I could see some of those other deer that I didn't, didn't uh, spook out. So I sat up and just saw one doe at probably about 10, 15 minutes before last light, probably about a hundred yards away down in kind of that bowl area. So I took my stuff down at the end of the sit and just went back in there the next day, a little bit warmer weather, but also much windier. And I decided because it was so windy to just hunt on the ground. So I didn't even bring sticks with me. I brought my saddle platform and I wore my saddle thinking that, Hey, number one, I could either set the platform up and sit on the platform, or I can hang on the backside of a tree, just depending on what the setup looks like when I get in there, got in there once again, picked a spot that had really good back cover, had this big kind of down timber and it was some evergreen uh, pine boughs and things like that. So I had good back cover and decided to set the platform up and sit on the platform. And maybe an hour before last light, I saw a doe start milling around very close to the same spot where I saw the one the day prior. And at this point she's maybe 80, 90 yards out and was just milling around feeding on browse and probably took 15 minutes to cover about 30 yards. And then she eventually looked like she was going to head kind of up toward the direction where I had been hunting the day prior. So I just kind of really slowly started to sneak out from where I was at next to that down timber. And I worked my way over five minutes or so about, I don't know, six, seven, eight yards. So I didn't move far at all in that time. Just really carefully placing my steps because the snow was so noisy. And then the deer turned and started actually coming my direction. And she was on a route that was probably going to pass within 20 yards at a certain point. But at the point where I had the option to draw back, she was about 35. So she passed this tree. I'm standing on the ground. I drew my bow back. And then at about 30 yards, 32 yards, somewhere in there, I did have an opening where I had a clear path to the vitals, but she was quartering too. And at that distance with a quartering two shot, I just thought I was going to get better shot opportunity. So I didn't shoot right then and there. Then she stopped at about 30 yards, a little bit more broadside, but I had obstructions over the vitals. And the only thing I had a clear shot to at that point was liver and back. So I wasn't going to take that shot either. She stood there for about 30 seconds. And then I could read her, her body language and it very strongly looked like she could smell something she didn't like. The wind was in my face for most of the evening. Every once in a while, I get a light swirl. It wasn't necessarily that I was in a bad spot for the wind, but it was so windy. Remember that up in the treetops and the canopies, there's some, you know, eddy currents and things like that that would eventually work their way down and cause an errant wind, direc an errant wind direction. Whereas 
90% of the time, the wind would be good. 10% of the time, you'd get that just that breeze that was in the wrong direction. And I think that's what happened in this particular case is she just kind of locked up. She almost kind of flinched a little bit. And I could see her head. She wasn't looking at me. I don't think she saw me. At this point, I was already full draw. So I, I there's no chance she saw me. There was no movement anyway, so to speak. And after about 15 seconds, she turned, gave a really brief shot opportunity, quartering away. And I did the, the voice grunt to stop. And she only paused for maybe like a, a half second or so and then started trotting off. So I, I just never really had a shot opportunity that was like a gimme. And that, that's what I was really hoping for. I wasn't, I wasn't not at all prepared to take a shot that was marginal. I wanted a gimme shot and I never really got it. So I didn't shoot. And that doe took off. And as I saw her run through the timber, eventually I saw two or three other deer meet up with her. So I don't know where exactly they were in this whole time. But at that point, I pretty much figured the gig was up and that was the last day of the season. So, you know, if I hunted there more, is there a chance I could have eventually connected with one of those deer if I would have started hunting it earlier? Yeah, that's a good, good chance probably. But, you know, that's just the way it happens sometimes. So overall, can't complain. To recap the season, just really briefly, I went out to North Dakota, shot a great buck out in North Dakota with Shane Simpson, who also shot a nice deer the day before I did. Then I went out to Colorado with my good buddy, Matt. We had a fantastic experience out there. Got my first archery shot opportunity to bull elk. Matt shot a doe mule deer with his muzzleloader. So we got to bring home some meat off the mountain from that trip. Made some great memories. Went down to Missouri, shot a nice buck down there, hanging out with the tethered crew. Bunch of good guys. Love hanging out with all that. Pretty much all those guys that were down there are real fun to hang out with. And then just hunted really around my home in Minnesota in the marsh country. And then hunted mostly hill country in Wisconsin and had lots of deer within shooting range, lots of good footage that I'll probably lay into a lot of my gear review videos that are going to be coming up over the next couple of weeks and months, but never really, you know, had an opportunity that was, you know, fantastic a close encounter with, you know, really the kind of deer I was hoping to get an encounter with. And that was, you know, pretty much it for those local states. I did have my wife go out hunting for the first few times, she had a couple of really close opportunities, but we never quite sealed the deal. You know, she's totally brand new at hunting and, and she seems to be enjoying it a lot. So I'm looking forward to expanding upon that and hopefully we have some really good opportunities together next year. But what I want to expand on a little bit more in this podcast in particular is the gear that I use this year. And in particular, some of the individual pieces of gear and systems that I liked the most this year. Also some gear that I used and I was satisfied with, and I think they would be worth talking about a little bit. They weren't necessarily game changers, but, you know, mostly good, some bad, but overall things I could say I was satisfied with. And then also things that I'm excited for most about this upcoming year in terms of gear in particular, you know, there's, there's hunts and trips and things like that, that I'm planning that I'm really excited about, but I want this particular podcast just to focus on the gear. And then also because ATA is coming up and this podcast will launch right kind of on that first day of ATA, I'm going to talk about some of the things in particular that I'm hoping I might see released at ATA. So with that said, let's start off with some of the gear that I like the most, the tethered phantom prototype. So when I posted my North Dakota hunt video, some of you, uh, some of the astute viewers noticed that. I had blurred out certain things on that video and that's because I was using a prototype of that phantom and there were certain things that were patent pending on it that just, I could not release images and videos of at that time. So we blurred them out. And there was also things too, that weren't necessarily set in stone. So, you know, there's kind of the issue of, Hey, number one, you know, some of these things that are shown in the video might not be part of the final thing. And there might be some IP type issues, right? So I actually on that trip hadn't planned on filming the saddle at all. It wasn't really until the fact that Shane uh, tagged his buck early and then was able to film me from a third party or third person view that that whole whole thing even came into play. But that being said, it just gives you a, an idea of when I had at least started to get some good in the field experience with that new Phantom saddle that Tethered's coming out with, and then throughout the year. 
I used it quite a bit and I did a good job of hiding it in my videos. And my wife, Sam, also used it quite a bit as well. So any of the videos where you do see me wearing a saddle, I'm usually wearing the Mantis. And that was intentional and that was usually because Sam and I would kind of flip back and forth who would wear what saddle just based on who was going to be hunting, who was going to be filming. So we each got some experience with that, which is kind of interesting to note because one of the things about that saddle is that it's sort of a one size fits most. So my wife and I were able to actually hunt out of the exact same set of saddles the entire season. And there's some things on it that, you know, it's tough to, it's tough to use the word game changer. I think it gets overused to be quite honest. I think that there are some definite improvements from a fit and functionality standpoint. I think that tethered is definitely held true to their design aspects of trying to keep a particular piece of gear as functional and minimalist as they can make it without compromising. So it's very similar to the Mantis in certain aspects. And there's also some key differences. And once the videos and stuff start popping up at ATA, it'll be a lot more clear what those differences are to some people. It might not seem like huge differences to others. It may seem like a big deal. I, you know, you just have to kind of wait and see, but by the time this podcast posts, it's going to be like a matter of hours, you know, if not days before you guys have that information and everybody knows everything about the saddle. But I can just say that from my perspective, I think it's a step up from the Mantis. I don't know if they plan on phasing out the Mantis or not. That'll be something we figure out at ATA. I think they're planning on keeping both, but don't quote me on that. I will continue to use the Phantom. It suits my needs a little bit better, and I feel like it's a little bit easier to maintain and establish comfort. So that's kind of my brief initial thoughts on it. I never had any issues with comfort the entire year. I did not hunt out of a tree stand one time this entire year. I did hunt off the ground a number of times, actually. And even if I did do a ground hunt, I always brought my saddle set up in. So I would wear my saddle on my body. It's got my lineman's belt. It's got my tether in the pouches. And then I have my platform sitting in the pack. So if I wasn't sure if I was going to climb a tree or not, I'd also bring the sticks. If I knew I was going to hunt on the ground, then oftentimes I would just ditch the sticks bring the platform and the saddle because that just gave me options. I could stand if I wanted to, I could kneel on the ground if I wanted to, I could put the platform up and kind of either sit really low or just kind of sit where it's more of a leaning against the platform. If I want to be on the front side of cover, or if I wanted to be on the back side of cover, I could just hang the rope uh, from the tree itself and just hang on the back side of the tree on the ground. So it was kind of versatile system and worth carrying that, you know, a couple pounds of weight in just to have those various options, not knowing exactly what I was going to run into on a particular ground style of hunt. And then of course, if it was one of those, I don't know what I'm going to do hunt when I get there, then of course I'd bring the sticks and I would climb the tree and hunt as per normal. And, you know, somebody asked me just recently on an Instagram comment, if I was ever going to plan on moving back to tree stands more, or if I'm pretty much, you know, all on board with the saddles, I, I think that there's, there's definitely, you can still make certain cases for instances in which a tree stand might be better. I've been saying that for a while and I still think that that holds true. That being said, for me, for the most part, I really can't think of too many instances unless I know of a specific tree where I just think a tree stand is going to work better. I'd say at least 90, 95% of my hunts are going to be with a saddle or hunting on the ground, which usually is a combination of the saddle from here on forward. So there you go. The next thing that I want to talk about that I really liked in terms of gear, the Arctic Shield boot covers. I actually tried two different brands of boot covers this year. One was the Arctic Shield. And it's actually an older model of the Arctic Shield. They look a little bit different than the current models out. I also bought a pair of the current ones. And in the sizes that I got, they fit Sam's boot size better. So she wore the new ones. I wore the old ones. They appear very similar in terms of the actual, you know, kind of fabric and build and whatnot. The only difference is mine are pretty much all camouflage. And hers have the, the new look. Like if you just Google it now and see what they look like, she had those. And the other brand that I tried is a new one called Kill. It's the brand is Kill the Chill. And what makes those particular boot covers unique is that they are actually heated. So they have very similar to kind of the heated vests that are out there now. They have those little tiny battery packs that will fit into like a pocket or whatnot. Well, these particular boot covers have a little spot on the inside of the ankle. Well, it's the outside of the boot cover, but on the inside of your leg. And they basically allow you to put the battery pack in and you can push the button on, turn it on high, medium, or low. And it heats that space inside the boot cover. 
So you have your boot inside the boot cover and there's a little bit of air gap in there. And the thought is your boot is only going to lose heat if the outside air around the boot is cold and starts that heat transfer. Well, the boot cover itself does a good job at insulating itself from the outside climate. So you just have that little pocket of air between the boot cover and the boot itself. And if you heat that air, then it really just doesn't give that much of an internal environment that would allow or promote your boot to lose any more heat. And in my practice hunting late season, they do, they really do an excellent job at, you know, keeping the heat in. And so do the Arctic shield boot covers. The main differences are, I think the kill the chill ones are a little bit harder to get on your boot and take off. The zipper doesn't quite go as far down in the back. Also the kill the chill ones, the material is different. It's a little bit heavier duty. It's got what appears to be like a, a Cordura nylon face. So I would say it's more durable, but also the face fabric itself is a little bit noisier, right? If you were to rub both of them together, you might get a little bit more noise in practical use. I didn't find it to be too much of an issue. But if you're the type of person who says, I don't like, you know, Cordura or nylon or whatever, I want everything to be as silent as possible. Then, you know, you'd kind of be stuck to, you know, putting stealth strips on or on them or something like that. The other thing is the location of the battery is on the inside of your ankle, like I mentioned earlier. So if you have both of your feet tight together, like on a saddle platform, it means those battery packs are going to be right next to one another. Again, in kind of practical use, I didn't find that to be an issue. I didn't really ever find myself bumping those batteries together, but it does, it is something to be kind of aware of. Once again, um, I'm curious as to why they put them there as opposed to maybe on the outside. But again, if they're probably thinking if guys are not on a saddle type platform and you'd be more likely to bump something on the outside of your leg, then it makes sense as to why they put the batteries where they did. Uh, but you can check those things out online and then compare them and contrast them to the Arctic shield ones. The Arctic shield ones, like I mentioned, I don't think they are quite as heavily built and they obviously don't have the batteries. But one thing you could do with the Arctic shield ones is you can stuff mechanical or not mechanical. You can stuff chemical hand warmers in there as many as you want, obviously. And the more you throw in there, the warmer it's going to get. One other difference is on the material, because it's a little bit lighter material in the Arctic shield ones, I found it personally a little bit easier to cinch up the top around my leg tighter. Uh, whereas with the, the kill the chill ones that, stiffer Cordura fabric didn't cinch down quite as tight. So if I was wearing bulky bibs and put those things on, then it was no issue. But if I was just wearing, you know, like fleece pants and then like a, a soft shell with a gaiter. So I had a nice, you know, kind of tightly packaged calf, then it was harder for me to get a really good seal around the top end of those, uh, those boot covers. So I'd say at least from my initial Initial thoughts using them late season this year, I think the Arctic Shield ones plus the hand warmers, if you need them, that would kind of be my maybe initial where I would lean towards. Uh, but I do think that the Arctic or the Kill the Chill one is still a, a good product. And I think that they would be a warmer product than the Arctic Shield ones if you really needed the extra warmth. That said, in terms of temperatures, there were several times where I was down in 30 degrees up in the saddle. There was 30 degree temperatures where I was standing on the snow and the ice, which obviously you got that convective heat transfer right into the ground. There was also times when I was out there and, you know, 20 degree and really high winds. Um, and even sometimes where it dipped down into the, the teens when I was wearing these Arctic shield boot covers with uninsulated boots. So that's the key thing here. A lot of times this year I was wearing uninsulated boots. I'd say probably 80% of the time I was wearing uninsulated boots and I really wanted to prove to myself that I could because obviously uninsulated boots, they're easier to walk in. If I'm wearing hip boots, it's just one less thing that I have to worry about getting a pair of insulated boots that my feet don't sweat as much, which is obviously a really huge thing in terms of staying or keeping your feet warm. So I found, and I don't want to beat this too, uh, too much because I talked about it in the last podcast a little bit. I like the Arctic Shield boot covers with the uninsulated boots. And that's probably something I'm going to continue to do next year. Now let's jump into the next piece of gear, uh, their overall fleet system. I really have grown to like that system. I think you get a lot of value uh, for the cost in terms of the quality of the clothing and not paying just a super premium uh, small batch kind of price. So again, I don't want to dive too, too deep into that one just because I 
you know, talked about it quite a bit in the last podcast that I did about layering. Uh, but just know that I really like that system and I'll probably, I'll probably build most of my system around their garments next year and probably just mix and match from other brands where it's, uh, where it kind of fits in. Like if it's super cold, like below zero, I'll probably throw in that sick of fanatic jacket as my outermost layer. Uh, and if it is, you know, really hot, I liked that hybrid base layer from first light, the, uh, wicking one. Oh gosh, what's it called? I think they call it the fuse now, but when I bought it, it was the, they just call it the arrow wool. Uh, but it's basically a blend between the nylon and the Merino and it's a, a really light dries quicker than just Merino. So I really like that as kind of my, my early season, but we'll see. Um, most likely the, the fleet will make the bulk of my layering system throughout the year next year. Now I'm going to start talking about gear that I used. I was satisfied with and didn't really have too much of a strong opinion one way or the other. So first one, Mr. Ranch pop-up 28. The things that I like about the Mr. Ranch pop-up 28, which by the way, this is a pack. If you guys aren't familiar with what the pop-up is, it's a pack that is small, like a day pack, but you can pull the top of the pack away, expand a load lifter, and then connect the bag back to the frame. So it's again, like a pop-up frame pack. It's not going to be nearly as robust as a full size, like Western frame, but it's kind of a hybrid between the two. A Western frame won't be able to pack down in a day pack mode like the pop-up does. So things I liked about it, I felt like for whitetail sizing, it was about right. And it was just durable enough that I was able to, for whitetails, pack out meat. So that North Dakota buck that I had, I packed that guy out. Well, it wasn't quite half a mile. So it wasn't too far of a pack. It wasn't too difficult of a pack. But it was a pretty heavy deer. And I got that whole buck out in one trip with that pop-up 28 pack. When I went out west, I used both the pop-up 28 and the Beartooth, which is one of Mystery Ranch's Western packs. And after several days, it was clear enough to me that I preferred using the Western style pack for the Western hunting. So the other things that I wasn't super keen on about the Mystery Ranch pop-up 28, the zippers are noisy. They're waterproof zippers. They always kind of make me nervous. I've never, I've never knowingly spooked a deer because of the zippers. I think it's just in my head more so than anything. I think if I'm standing 20 feet away, I probably won't even hear him that much. But when you're standing there and you just, you hear that zipper open up and it's just, it's noisy, uh, just does, it gets to my head a little bit. And the fabric itself is also, again, I think a 500 denier Cordura or something close to there, somewhere right around in that area. And again, not a deal breaker by any means, but for a whitetail pack, I just want it to be quieter, like a micro fleece or a, even a, a soft shell finish type, you know, brushed fabric. I don't know why that isn't just standard on every whitetail marketed pack. So there was definitely some things I wasn't super keen on about it, but it did serve its purpose really well. It's overkill for if you're not going to carry moderate loads, if you don't ever plan on packing out a deer, if the most weight you're ever going to carry is like your climbing system and maybe even a camera arm or something like that. It's probably overkill to be totally honest. Somebody asked if they could carry a tree stand in it. I think you could, but I personally am in the camp that I would rather, if I'm using a tree stand, just put shoulder straps and a padded waist belt on the tree stand and use that as my frame versus using a frame pack to actually put the tree stand into. Cause then you're kind of, I don't, it just seems like in my opinion, you're doubling up on frames and you don't have to. So for a more minimalist approach, I like putting the hip belt right on the stand itself. And that's just, there's no right or wrong way to do that. It's just kind of how I have always done things. Another piece of gear that I liked and was, you know, there's some good and some bad about it. The Sitka Fanatic Pack. Things that I liked about the Fanatic Pack are basically all the stuff that they advertised about it. It is deadly quiet. The webbing-based closure systems that they have were surprisingly easy to use. They did a really good job at stiffening those components. So even with a light pair of gloves on, I've never had any issues with getting those little webbing molly-based loops to be able to hook and close. Things I didn't like about it, you know, with that big heavy Berber fabric, I just, I don't know if it's overkill, I think. I don't think they need that high pile fleece. I'm sure it helps with the noise, but in the same way that the Mystery Ranch pack is noisier than I like it to be, but in practical significance, it probably isn't as big of a deal as I think it is. With a Sika Fanatic pack, I think if they would have just used like a 
you know, lower pile fleece instead of that real big burger stuff, I think they would have been just fine and cut down a little bit on the bulk of the pack, even though it's not too bad all by itself. Other things to note about the pack, it is not structured at all. I mean, you can basically take the pack and just roll it up. It doesn't have a hip belt. The shoulder straps are, you know, there's no structure in it. So they did that by design. The heaviest load that I personally carried in it for any particular amount of time was me carrying my, you know, pretty typical mid-season setup of, you know, bibs, jacket, camera gear, sticks. So about 30 pounds I carried in that pack. And on one particular hunt, I made about two miles in, two and a half miles back. And by the end, my traps were feeling it a little bit because of the lack of the hip belt. So that was maybe one of those trips where if I'm carrying that much weight, then I probably would have been a little bit better off carrying it with the Mystery Ranch pack than the Sitka pack. But if you're not going very far, it's not that big of a deal. If you're not carrying that much weight, it's not that big of a deal. But you're obviously not going to be able to pack out a deer with that type of pack. It's it's a very specific pack for a very specific purpose. And if you watch the video that they have for marketing that pack, that pack seems like it would fit that particular usage very well. And so there's certain aspects and certain hunts that I go on where it's similar enough to that, where that pack is, I, I like it a lot, but it's also not something that I'm just going to use overall for all the hunting that I do. It's just, it's not versatile enough. So definitely some, some good and some bad about it. I think the price for what it is and how it's constructed, I think is reasonable. I think it's put together very well. It's very spacious. It definitely seems like there's a lot more internal space in that pack than there is in the Mr. Ranch, even though on paper, I think they're similar in terms of their volumes. I definitely do seem to get more space with that internal area on the Fanatic. And also the water bladder pouch on the inside is about the perfect size to drop a predator platform in and add a little bit of structure even. Next piece of gear. So like I talked about in an earlier podcast, and I did a video on this as well. I switched to, at least for a certain part of the season, I switched to a thumb trigger release for archery. And the one that I used mostly was the Hotshot Deuce. And I also had a knock-on silverback that I used for practicing quite a bit and really forcing the habit of pulling through the shot and then switched over to that Hotshot Deuce. And that was the release that I used for out west. That was the release I used for my North Dakota hunt. And the, basically the release I used for a, a, really a whole lot of my practice over the summer. Things I liked about it, I felt like I was fairly accurate with it. I really, really liked the fact that I could just hook that thing onto the D loop up in the tree and not have to clip my wrist rocket release on the D loop. So that aspect is really nice, especially when you're trying to film. It's just one less thing you got to worry about. So I like that a lot. Things that... I wasn't as huge of a fan about number one. I was always kind of paranoid that I was going to bump that thumb trigger accidentally and send the release flying down to the dirt. I was always kind of worried that I would forget it at the truck, even though it was never an issue in kind of practical use. One thing that I noticed is when I would put the release in my pocket to carry it from the truck to the, uh, out in the woods, probably three or four times I would have the issue where one of those little screws would loosen up just enough to where the barrel would start to loosen and kind of flop around. And then of course there was nothing I could do about it until I got back home and took one of those little itty bitty Allen wrenches and tightened that thing back up. So unless I start carrying a little set of Allen keys out in the woods, then I'd be able to deal with that. But you know, as is, as there's something I had to deal with, I was still able to execute clean shots, even with that thing being loose. I had a coyote come in once and that thing was just like rotating all around but I was still able to get to full draw and kind of grab that loose thumb barrel and then start to execute my shot once again and, you know, get it to fire like usual. So again, it was kind of more something that was in my head than anything else. Will I continue to use the thumb trigger next year? Yeah, I probably will. I, I will probably honestly continue to shoot with all of my release styles. You know, all of the really good archers that I use like to shoot several releases for the reason that it forces them to focus on the shot execution. And, I think I totally buy into that theory. I'm going to continue to shoot different styles of releases in terms of what I'm going to hunt with. You know, I went back to the indexed uh, trigger style for the Missouri hunt and all my late season stuff. And there's things that I really like about that too. Number one, there's a confidence thing in just being able to strap that thing out of the truck and know that I am not forgetting it. And the index style trigger that I have, it's a Scott little bitty goose from over a decade ago. 
I'm still using the same one. The thing that I liked about that particular release is that it had just a little rope attachment for the caliper uh, head, and then I just covered that whole thing in stealth strips minus the rope. So when I'm climbing a tree, the rope allows that little stealth strip caliper head to flop out of the way, so it's not interfering at all with what I'm doing as I'm trying to set up into the tree. So that's that's a big thing for me in the index style release. And then the other thing too is there's also a confidence thing with just taking my hand and my finger strength out of the equation altogether and just relying on the big muscles of my back uh, and my arms to be able to get the bow back to full draw. Uh, especially if I've been out there and it's kind of cold, my hands are starting to get numb uh, for whatever reason, which is becoming less of an issue now as I've gotten you know better at my layering system and keeping my extremities warm. But it is something that I keep in mind. And when I shot that deer in Missouri, and when I practiced with that index trigger, especially after practicing with the hand style releases, again, it was just kind of, it felt so natural to me to be able to use that style of release. Again, to be fair, I have used that style of release for, a, you know, several, several years, much more total time than I have given to the hand style release. So I think there's pros and cons to each. I will probably continue to use all of them. Um, next piece of gear. Uh, so this one's not, a physical piece of gear. It's a, an app, uh, on X. I like on X. There's things that kind of bug me a little bit about it. And there's things that I really like about it and they're getting stiffer and stiffer competition. Hunt stand came out with some updates earlier this year that really added a lot of functionality to hunt stand itself. There's still some things that are kind of tough to use for hunt stand for me. Um, but they did make a lot of improvements over what it used to be. There's also Gaia GPS, and there's some things I really like about Gaia, especially for navigating and having slope angle shading on the app. The thing about Onyx is it's got a very simple user interface, and it's probably the easiest for at a quick and high level identifying public lands, and it's also been the most accurate in terms of having things listed as public that are actually public and vice versa compared to some of the apps when I've looked at them all side by side. So... I still lean mostly toward Onyx. Things that I don't really like about Onyx right now, number one, I haven't been able to figure this out, and maybe if somebody knows who's listening to this can let me know. When I save a track, it becomes less detailed. So I can, as I'm creating a track and walking through the woods and leaving my breadcrumb trail, I can see all the detail in that trail. And then as soon as I hit save, it's like it just takes the number of you know total data points that it collected and just divides it by 10 and just makes it, you know, more of a, a jaggedy line rather than having all that detail. Uh, and so I, I imagine it's just kind of a data and space storage issue. Uh, if there's a way for me to get it back to where it just contains all the original detail, I think I'd prefer that better. So if anybody knows, um, please send me a message. Uh, the other thing about the app, and actually this is so much about the phone app as it is the online desktop version of Onyx is I'm maxed out at 1500 waypoints and I hit 1500 waypoints so long ago. And the issue is for whatever reason on my phone, I can just continue to save waypoints and make shapes and lines and all that kind of sort of stuff. And I can just go wild. But when I'm on the computer, it says, Hey, you can't save any more desktops. You've already hit your 1500. And there was a certain point where I went through and I started deleting hundreds of waypoints that I felt like were no longer, you know, really high priority waypoints to me across the various states. Cause sometimes I'll just e-scout a place that I've never been to. I might just be speculating about a place and I'll just drop pins all over the place. And that's part of the reason why I have as many waypoints as I do. And so I just started deleting a whole bunch of stuff and I got to the point where I could start saving things on the computer again. And then I went back over and I just haven't taken the time to deal with deleting more waypoints again. So I just continue to use the, the phone mostly for it. So like I said, there's, there's things I definitely love about Onyx. It's still, I would say my go-to in terms of all the mapping applications, but there's a couple little, you know, minor quirks about it that I, you know, just thought I'd let you guys know. The Osmo pocket is the next piece of gear I want to talk about. Kind of a love hate relationship with that thing as well. So the thing I love about the Osmo pocket and the Osmo pocket is a camera. Uh, so for those of you who don't film your hunts, this one's probably going to be irrelevant, skip forward a couple minutes, but it's one of the cameras that is designed to be used kind of as a vlogging camera. It's got a tighter crop 
or a tighter angle of view than something like a, a wide angle. Like if you think GoPro, it's got a tighter field of view than that. It's got a little bit better depth of field. It's got some really nice looking image. And to be totally honest, I, I think the image quality out of it is very good for what it is in low light and the stabilization that's gimbal based is fantastic. And it's still small enough of a camera that I can literally put it on a head strap and then be able to film my hunts that way. My entire elk hunt was filmed with the Osbo pocket. The only time where it kind of struggles in terms of image quality is really low light. It doesn't do quite as good because the sensor is small. It's like one over, you know, basically like a one half inch sensor, which is very, very typical for action type cameras, you know, GoPros, the Sony, you know, all of these cameras have these tiny little sensors, which is why they never really do great in low light. The Psyonix, on the other hand, does really, really good at low light, but it has some other quirks um, in terms of like lower resolution. And um, well, that's probably the biggest, the biggest issue I have with it. It's also a little bit, it's got a different use case. Um, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent right there, but the Osmo Pocket, in terms of image quality, it's great. It's wonderful for uh, vlogging style footage. When I did that scouting video back in this uh, past spring, the one where I had the shadow on the thumbnail, that one was filmed almost entirely with the Osmo Pocket. It does a fantastic job. It can track my face. So when I'm walking through brush and stuff and I'm talking to the camera, that thing is just locked in on my face. And it does a pretty decent job at, at focusing. And, you know, like I said, the image quality is great. But things that things that irritate and kind of bug me about it, number one, to turn the thing on, it takes like five seconds to hold the power button down and let the camera power up and let the gimbal auto-calibrate. And then once it's done auto calibrating after a couple seconds, then you can hit the power or you can hit the record button. Well, with most other action cameras on the market, you just hit the record slash power button once it makes a beep and then it goes through the power on cycle and automatically starts recording as soon as you, as soon as it's powered up. So with a camera like that, you just got to press the button once when you think the action is going to happen and then you can go to do it, whatever you're going to do to uh, get a shot off. Whereas with that Osmo, I got to sit there and turn the thing on, wait a couple seconds and I have to make sure my head is perfectly level when that happens. If I'm looking down, if I'm looking up above the horizon, that thing will auto calibrate to the horizon, no matter where my head is pointed. So if my head's pointed down and I turn the thing on, it'll auto calibrate to the horizon. And if I pick my head back up to level, it'll be looking up in the air. So it makes aiming the thing very critical. So I eventually got to the point where I said, it's not worth it for me to be able to have to try and turn this thing on in the field when action is about to happen. So what I moved to is using a little wireless module with it and then running an external battery pack right into that Osmo pocket. And then I use my phone app to verify that the camera is pointed the correct direction. I'll actually hold my arm out like I'm holding my bow. I'll look at something like a tree that I would you know, be aiming at, so to speak, and verify on my phone app that the pocket is aimed the correct direction. And then I would go ahead and hit record and just let it record. And with that 256 gigabyte card and with the external battery pack, I, that thing can record for like four hours straight. So for an evening hunt where I'm just dumping footage at the end of the hunt, it worked out all right for that. And with those big file sizes that get cut up so I could just literally pick and choose which of those little, you know, four gigabyte clips had the most important information that I actually want to keep just transfer those files and just delete everything else. So I don't take up too much storage on my computer. <clears throat> the audio with it is, eh, I mean, like most action cameras, it's not fantastic out of the camera. They do have an adapter for an external microphone, but here's the catch. To use that adapter for the microphone, you have to stick it into the same USB-C port as what the external power runs into. It's also the same USB-C port that you'd use that Wi-Fi module on. So there's a lot of action cameras. You have just the internal ability to connect to your phone with that Osmo, you put that Wi-Fi module on and then you can no longer use the microphone adapter. So you're kind of stuck between, do I want to use my phone to connect with this thing or do I want to use the microphone out in Colorado? I used the mic. It worked okay. But again, there was, you know, there's little quirks. Like it wouldn't start actually recording audio if I had an external mic plugged in until like two or three seconds after the camera had started recording. So, I would love for there to be a better solution for that. But in terms of video quality, it's still kind of the best head mount in terms of the footage that actually comes out of it, as long as I do my part. 
and it's the closest thing that I've been able to find so far that actually gets me to the point where I look at the footage and I say, Hey, honestly, I don't even really need a camera arm at this point if I'm shooting a deer within 30 yards, because this thing does a good enough job that I can portray my story without looking like I have just garbage footage quality without a camera arm. So that's, that's what I like about it. And that's why I continue to use it. Although I'm still experimenting with mods to it and I am still keeping my eyes open for other newer things that might eventually replace it. But as of right now, it's still kind of the, the best that I've you know, been able to use. Speaking of cameras, the next thing I want to talk about is the out on a reach, excuse me, the out on a limb reach camera arm. So there's things I really like about the reach and there's some things that I'm not as fond of about that particular camera arm. The things that I like about it are the packability and the portability and how it sets up, how it levels. I really like the base that goes with it. It stuffs in the smallest pocket, smallest of pockets on my pack. It sets up easily on the tree. I can get it just rocks out onto the, the tree itself when I cam it down. But with the arm that comes with it, it's a, a shorter three section arm. And the, the arm itself is kind of a solid bar stock. The first one closest to it is two bars to add some additional vertical stiffness. And then the middle and the furthest segment of the camera arm are just, you know, kind of solid rod stock or square stock. And the square stock sizing of it, the trade-off is stiffness. Uh, so in order to get better packability, the trade-off was losing some stiffness. So if you compare it to some camera arms that have, you know, the larger diameter square tubing or round tubing, you're not going to get quite that same level of stiffness. But the trade-off is, right, you can dang near stuff that thing in your pocket. So kind of some, some love and some give and some take with that particular arm. I would like it to be stiffer for my camera, which typically if I'm using a camera arm, it's the AX53 uh, from Sony. We're talking about potentially going back to a bigger camera like the FDR AX700 and running a shotgun mic on that too. And I think if that were the case, I would probably want a little bit stiffer arm than the reach as is, I think for like a camera, the size of the AX 53, it's serviceable. But if I'm zoomed in a lot, it was really tough to, to get some of the micro shakes out. If you're running a lighter camera though, I think that arm works really well. So definitely the best arm out there in terms of, in terms of, you know, for our mobile hunter packability wise. Um, but the trade-off and the thing you got to be aware about with it is the trade-off of stiffness. So better packability, less stiffness. And you just got to make sure you have a appropriate size camera to be able to run with it. And the last thing on this list is, um, the iron will broadheads I used this year for at least some of the season. The first year I shot was with those three blade bishops, which are again, very similar to like the, the VPAs that are just made out of a more shock resistant steel with the S seven steel uh, versus a lot of heads. Like, you know, I think the cutthroats are like 41 all 40, I'm not sure what the VPAs are exactly. Um, the Magnus snuffers are a stainless steel. And basically the thing about the iron will head in particular is it's not altogether that much different than your typical two blade plus bleeder style of head. But the big difference is the blade quality and just kind of the ferrule quality and the overall toughness and the build construction of the head. So design wise, you see a lot of similarities and, and in terms of terminal performance on a game animal, you can expect similar things in terms of like amount of blood apples to apples, right? You can't just shoot like one with one head, one with another and say like, Oh, this one did better. Like I'm talking about like if you were to hit, you know, the same exact spot or the same exact conditions, you'd expect probably similar things to, heads of similar geometries and also shape or sharp blades. But what you get with that iron will is you get a blade that is a much harder steel, a much stronger steel than what is typically used on the blades of cheaper broadheads. It comes just wicked sharp out of the box and it's maybe not the easiest thing to sharpen for people who are very sharpening challenged, but I found I didn't have any issues getting back to shaving sharp with that thing. And one of the advantages also of that higher quality steel is that not only are you able to have a shaving sharp, nice 
blade to begin with, but it also stays sharp longer. It's got better edge retention, better edge stability, and you're going to know and have the confidence that when you shoot through an animal, that blade is going to be dang near just as sharp as it was coming out of your bow. Whereas a lot of heads, if you actually go and look at, you know, some of the cheaper fixed blade broadheads and you shoot them through an animal, especially the ones that have replaceable blades, you'll oftentimes find that you'll have a blade that has dings or chips or the edges rolled over a little bit, but you don't really get that with the iron wheel unless you hit some just major, major bone uh, on even like a bigger animal. Going through like a scapula of a whitetail, I, I don't think based on my testing, you're going to have much of an issue and you're going to be able to reuse that blade a lot more likely uh, than you would with a cheaper fixed blade broadhead. So, and the, it was the same thing with the bishop too. I, the bishop, I can dang near shoot into a rock and just pick it up and put it back in my quiver. So, you see a similar thing with the iron weld, not quite that durable, but very, 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 very adequate for actual hunting scenarios. The deer that I killed with that particular broadhead in Missouri, I shot him high and forward in the lungs. It was about a half an inch underneath the scapula on both sides. So pretty much a symmetrical hit and it just hit one of those lobes. It was kind of high and forward in the lungs and we were able to track that deer in the snow. It wasn't a ton of blood on the ground, but it was a higher hit. Right. And so you wouldn't expect quite as much blood. And the other thing was that deer was just booking it. And so he ended up making it, I think it was close to 200 yards. And that's one of those things where if I had hit that same exact spot out of a tree stand at that downward angle with the same entry, it probably would have right through the top of the heart and that deer would have piled over in like 35, 40 yards, probably right in all likelihood. So that's again, why it's so, so tough to put the overall capabilities of like a broadhead or an arrow setup or something like that based off of one or two, or even just a handful of animals. There's such a wide range of variables and circumstances that when I talk about, you know, broadheads in particular, I, I talk as much about the design characteristics and, you know, the manufacturing and the steels and things like that as what you're going to expect on an animal because that's right. There's more variables there. I can look at two broadheads that are designed similarly. If one has a better steel than the other, I can say, well, here's what you can expect, right? This one's going to hold up better. The edge retention is going to be better. It may or may not be tougher to sharpen, but you're less likely to have a feral bend. You're less likely to have an edge rollover, right? Things like that. So with iron well, you're paying more money, but you're also, um, you're also not having to deal with some of the issues that can come with the cheaper bladed uh, broadhead in terms of a fixed blade. I do wish for whitetails because my setup at 70 pounds, 29 and a half inch draw, even with a slower cammed bow, right? I'm only shooting that thing. I think I was 238 feet per second or 240 feet per second when I shot that deer in Missouri with like 580 green arrows tipped with that iron well. I blow through a whitetail so easily with that setup that realistically I could push a bigger cut, right? So it's kind of always the trade-off of if I do happen to hit scapula or something like that, or I have a quartering two shot and I want to really hug it tight, then I want as small of a cut as possible. But if I do happen to hit a little bit further back, then I want to big of a cut as I can push through, right? So there's the, there's never a right answer. Uh, it's always just, you have that trade-off that you got to deal with. But I think overall, when you look at kind of the bell curve of what could happen, I believe with my setup and most, you know, kind of whitetail guy setups, you can often get away with a little bit bigger cut with that quality of a head and that much energy momentum behind it and still get the adequate penetration that you need, but just have that many more vessels cut as you're going through little bit more blood on the ground, which might make that tracking drive a little bit easier and better likelihood that you, you know, nick that huge artery that just puts them down in a matter of a handful of seconds. And if you do happen to hit further back, then that's one of those cases where the more things you can cut, I think the better. So I would have zero issues with continuing to use the iron will next year. I for sure will probably use them and or the bishops out West. What I would like to see and would be interested to see would be a little bit bigger cut option with that particular head. And maybe we'll see that at ATA. I don't know. There's been rumors about it anyway. Next thing on the list is actually I've gotten to the end of the list. Now let's talk about things I'm excited for next year. So 2020, what are the things that I've been just pumped about and just ready to, to test and maybe some things I've already tested and things I'm going to use next year. The first one is climbing method. So I've talked 
several times over the last several podcasts about kind of the overall climbing method I usually fall back to, which is three to four sticks, single step aider, and it just works. It's not very packable, but it's lightweight with lightweight climbing sticks. And I don't have to worry about the fiddle factor. I'm able to get up in a tree nice and easy, controlled, smooth, quiet. In terms of being an effective deer hunter, it does everything I pretty much need it to do. The only time where it gets old is when I'm on those really hard access hunts, whether it's just a long distance and the weight just eventually starts to, to wear in on me a little bit. Or if it's just one of those really steep hunts and I'm carrying camera gear and I got bibs and jacket and all these extra clothes, right? The thing that I kind of wrote off a couple of years ago has now kind of piqued my interest again. And that particular thing is using the one stick method, but not in the same manner that I used to use the one stick method, which kind of caused me to write it off. This one is going to be slightly modified in the terms of the equipment that I use. So number one, climbing stick that I would use for this, a little bit stiffer stick, better aider, and also one that just really eats into the bark of the tree and just really sticks and bites hard. And I have some, uh, some stuff prototype that's been working really well. And then also this is, this one was kind of the deal maker for me being able to rappel on the way down. So I had looked into rappelling in the past, never really interested me that much. But once I saw somebody do this whole system, I was like, man, let me try that. And I went out and I, I tried it myself and I'm like, you know what? The biggest issue with me for climbing with the one stick method in the past was it took so dang long to climb back down. There was no quick way for me to get down to the ground. So if I were up at hunting height and I'd shoot a deer and spine it and it'd be in the grass and I didn't have a clear shot for a follow-up, right? Like it's going to take me 10, 15, 20 minutes to get back down to the ground to be able to stick a second arrow in them. Or if I drop something out of the tree, it's like, oh crap, you know, I might as well not even, uh, hope it wasn't something important for the hunt, but with the ability to repel, I can get from the top of the tree down to the bottom in like 10 seconds and I can bring the stick down with me. So it really takes that whole piece of it out of the equation. And now it just is a matter of how big of a pain in the butt is it to get up the tree? Well, with one stick, I still have some of the same advantages that I have with multi-sticks. Those being, I can get them in any tree. I don't have to worry about limbs. I don't have to worry about forks in the tree. I don't have to worry about leans. So from that aspect, it's, it's the same either way. Timing, I still think I'm quicker going up the tree with three or four sticks than I would be with the one stick. But then advantage back to the one stick, I can climb higher with the one stick than I could with even six sticks if I really wanted to. In early season, a lot of times I don't climb that high anyway. It's just where the cover is. But then later in, in the season, sometimes you get those opportunities where you want to go up 25, 30 feet. It just all depends. And so those are instances where it's like, man, four sticks isn't quite even getting me to where I want to go. I would want to carry a fifth or, you know, potentially even a sixth stick. And, and that just really, if you're on a mile and a half in carrying five or six sticks plus camera gear, extra clothes, like it just, it doesn't sound appealing anymore at that point. And that's where that one stick starts to become more and more appealing. So there's some gear that goes along with that. And I'll probably refine it a little bit more. I'm, I'm pretty close, I think, to where I want to be. But eventually I'll do a video on it and just kind of show some of the things that have gotten me swayed back in that direction of utilizing the one stick method a little bit more as a tool in the toolbox to use where it makes sense. So I'm pretty excited about that. Also, I am excited about, from a camera and video recording perspective, some of the technologies that have recently been produced on the 360 videos side of things. And this might be something that's totally like you're not even aware of if you're not into cameras at all, but basically they have the technology now to record 360 degrees around an action camera, right? There's two lenses, one on each side. They're both really, really wide angle lenses, wide enough to the point where their field of views actually overlap. And so they're capturing everything between those two cameras. And then within software or within the app, it's able to stitch that footage together. And then you end up with a file that allows you to basically look you know, the entire direction around that camera. And you can either, 
upload it as a 360 file. And maybe you've seen it on Facebook where you can hold your phone up and kind of look around and stand in your living room and turn around and you can look around wherever that person has the, you know, the screen pointed, or you can reframe that footage. So the advantage of that would be if I stick my camera on my tether and I'm sitting up in the saddle, everything's getting recorded. So then I have the ability to kind of aim, capture everything in the hunt and then aim it where I need to aim it after the fact. So there's some limitations, one being resolution. The resolution is spread throughout the entire field of view, not just one particular direction. So if you have, say, a 4K 360-degree camera, it's not going to be the same resolution as a 4K like GoPro, for example. Some of the 360 cameras have 5.7K now. Some of them have 8K recording, and they have big file sizes. And there's new ones that continue to come out in the artificial intelligence with how they mesh the footage together and how they're able to you know, utilize certain functions and how they interact with low light and all these various things, it just continues to get better and better and better. And so I think I very likely will be moving to a 360 degree camera as kind of my either tether mount from up in the tree or my camera that I stick on a limb, right? When I was recording a couple of days ago, this past weekend, I had my little action camera on super wide angle mode facing back at me from my second angle. And as soon as I got up and started walking those couple of yards to get a better shot opportunity at that deer, now all of a sudden I wasn't in that frame anymore. But with a 360 camera, I would have been able to frame over that direction to be able to still capture myself kind of creeping away from that original spot. So it wouldn't replace whatever is my main camera, but as a second angle, man, it's, it's, I'm pretty excited to be able to start implementing that. It would work really good for turkey hunting too, I think. And then lastly, let's talk about some things that I'm hoping to see at ATA. I am going back to ATA this year, um, a little bit different than what I did last year. So last year I went through kind of a media account. I went with uh, Sports Nation. This year I'm going with Tethered. So I'm on an exhibitor pass and I'm going to be helping out Tethered, you know, talking about the stuff, helping out with the booth at where needed. And then I'll also be kind of, you know, when I have time working or uh, walking around the the particular you know floor and just looking at the stuff that's available. So I probably won't be releasing videos in the same kind of method that I was last year. So just, you know, that's, it is what it is, but at the same time, I'll still be able to kind of gather thoughts and be able to, to look at various things while I'm there. Some of the things that I'm interested to see, number one, like I mentioned earlier, I'm curious to see if Iron Will is coming out with a, a white tail version, so to speak of their head, a little bit wider cut, maybe a, a little bit bigger bleeder or something along those lines. I'm also curious to see what I may particularly like for a short axle to axle bow. And this one, this one is kind of a one that I'm not set in stone on. I don't know that I necessarily need or want a new bow, but I want to shoot what's there and just see kind of what I like and what I don't like. The bow that I have right now and the bow that I've been shooting a lot is the BX32, that new breed one. And it's a 32 axle to axle. It's short enough axle to axle that I can sit my butt on the ground up against a tree like I'm turkey hunting. And I can draw that thing back and shoot it without the cam hitting the ground. So that's nice. But with saddle hunting, there's certain scenarios where literally it's like the shorter the better. To the point where the only thing that you're going to hurt yourself by going too short is when you start to lose enough forgiveness that it's affecting you on the accuracy side of things. So I want to see, you know, just kind of what the options are out there and see if there's something that may make a little bit better sense in terms of a short ATA bow. And if there's something that I just absolutely fall in love in, maybe I'll buy a new bow. But if not, I'll just continue to stick with what I have now. The other thing that I would be interested to see is on the pack side of things, you heard my complaints and you heard the things I liked about some of the packs that I use mostly this year, being the Fanatic Pack from Sitka and the Mr. Ranch pop-up. Very different packs, very different use case scenarios, but they both had things that I thought I would have liked better. And so I'm curious to see if anybody comes out with a pack that kind of fits all the particular needs I'm looking for. And it doesn't have to be a do-all pack, but maybe if, you know, hey, Mystery Ranch might come out with a, a new version of their pack that has a quieter material, right? That'd be cool. Uh, or maybe if, if uh, somebody comes out with a pack that is frameless, but if I'm going on a hunt where maybe I have the one stick method and I'm not using a camera arm because I've gotten my, 
non-camera arm camera options so refined that I don't need it anymore and I'm not carrying extra clothes and I just need a real minimalist pack, maybe there's something out there that's really going to uh, get me excited from, from that perspective. So apart from that, I mean, to be honest, those are kind of the, the key things that I'm looking for and I'm curious about. I have gotten so, I don't, I don't know if content is maybe the right word, kind of content, but also just so locked in with my system that there's very specific things that I'm even, you know, interested in changing at this point. There's a lot of things about my system that I just am very happy with. So I will scan the entire show floor for things that I think are new, interesting, cool things that I want to share. But at the same time for, for things that I may want to implement personally, it'll have to be something that really, you know, jumps out to me in particular, uh, because at this point, everything that I want is so specific it's like, if I can't make the dang thing of myself, it's like, I hope that, you know, somebody else can read my mind, so to speak. So we'll see. I think it'll be a fun trip. Uh, I think it'll be a great time. So I'm looking forward to it. And you know, that'll do it for, for this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Again, I really, really appreciate all the listeners that, uh, tune into this particular podcast. I appreciate all the viewers on my YouTube channel. Both platforms continue to grow. Uh, big thanks to the Sportsman's Nation for, you know, continuing to give me this platform to be able to push the podcast out. It definitely takes a big load off my shoulders uh, being able to run, you know, my podcast through their their network and, you know, gives the additional exposure. So make sure to leave a review on iTunes if you get a chance. Make sure to give Dan Johnson a big thanks for putting the Sportsman's Nation podcast network together. He does a, a really fantastic job, I think, and he, he really puts a lot of effort into it. Make sure to keep your eyes peeled for additional content after ATA and in that kind of time frame, and then be on the lookout also for additional gear reviews. I will be posting over the next several weeks additional gear reviews. I wanted to kind of keep the season itself more focused on actual hunting footage, and now that I have collected all my thoughts on the various things I use this year, you'll be able to see some very specific instances where I, you know, take one particular piece of gear and just get my thoughts on it. So stay tuned for that. And thanks for listening.